He makes them, in a sense, equal partners with him. And this is something very beautiful and significant. St. Paul acknowledged this himself, even though St. Paul was not yet a disciple, was not in, in the story that we read this morning. But St. Paul himself, in, in the epistle to the Corinthians, he acknowledged, he says, we are co-workers with God. We are God's co-workers. We, we and God work together. This is something really sort of unthinkable. And again, it's not something practical. From a practical standpoint, we humans just mess up things. From a practical standpoint, we, we make things worse. God is much better working without us. God can be much more efficient. He can, be much more, he can finish things more quickly. Um, but he chooses to raise us to this dignity. He chooses to, to make us friends of God and, par- and partakers and participants and co-workers with him. And this is what he said to the, to the disciples. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So the servant doesn't know everything that his master is doing, but a friend does is what Christ is saying. And he raised us to the level of friendship. In a sense, we might, we might even see that the fall itself, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, was essentially a loss of friendship with God. That, that God had created Adam and Eve to be friends. That humanity was called to friendship. And the loss through the, through the sin of disobedience of this friendship is the catastrophe. It is this loss of friendship that is the cause of all of the, the ills of, of mankind. So, in a sense, then, salvation is the restoration of this friendship. And, he, and, and the Lord shows us throughout the Old Testament this reestablishing of this friendship through some of the important personalities that we'll see together, and then ultimately with his disciples and with each one of us. And nothing really can separate God from this desire to be friends with us. Not even betrayal, as we saw in the case of Judas when he came with, with, the, uh, with the gang on Holy Thursday to arrest the Lord. The Lord greeted Judas by calling him friend. Friend, why have you come? He reminds him that, why, why give up so much? I made you a friend friend of heaven, a friend of the kingdom. So it's very important for us as Christians that we acknowledge Christ as Lord. He is the Almighty. He is the Pantocrator, as we say. He is master. He is teacher. But he is also brother and friend. And even as some of the saints would go on to say that he is even our lover because he made himself the spouse, the bridegroom of the bride which is not only the church, but every human soul is the bride of Christ. So we go even beyond friendship to say that this level of intimacy is that between two lovers. As one of the fathers said, the king who governs us, speaking of Christ, he is the king who governs us, the shepherd who guides us, the doctor who cures us, 
the teacher who instructs us, the father who loves us, the guest who enriches us, the friend who consoles us. And another one of the saints said, if you are a slave, then you will fear the face of the Lord. If you are a hireling, that is one who is like a hired servant, you will hope that he will hire you. If you are a disciple, you will attend to the instructions of your master. If you are a son, you will honor your father. But if you are a lover, you will ask your beloved for a kiss. If you are a lover, you will ask your beloved for a kiss. And some of the saints have even said that the Eucharist is this kiss, that when the Eucharist touches our mouth, it is this kiss of God to each one of us. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. Who else do we invite into our homes for a nice meal and conversation other than a friend or someone that we love? So it's an invitation, an invitation to acknowledge that the redemption, the salvation is a call to friendship. It's a call to intimacy. We are friends of God. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Samuel, the Lord God says, I will honor those who honor me. What a beautiful sort of statement of truth about God and his relationship to each one of us. God will honor every person who honors him. And in the Gospel of St. John, the same truth is reiterated where the Lord says, where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So God not only invites us to friendship and intimacy, but he seeks to honor us, to raise us up. And we see, in a sense, again, if we look at this idea that salvation is this restoration of friendship with God, well, where, where does sort of the narrative begin? It begins with Abraham. Abraham is sort of the beginning of, of the renewal of this covenant, right? And what, is, what does the Lord say to Abraham? He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can we think of a greater honor that God bestows on somebody than to say that I will make you the blessing of the world? I will make it so that whoever respects you and honors you respects and honors me, and whoever disrespects and dishonors you disrespects and dishonors me. And again, to prove that this calling to Abraham is a call to friendship, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he says to Israel, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen, the descendants of my friend Abraham. This is the Lord speaking. Israel is the descendant of my friend God says, Abraham, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and give you help. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. He's, as if he's saying, I will do these things because you are related to my friend, Abraham. And in the book of James, again, the apostle says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. Abraham wasn't just obedient. He didn't just listen and obey and, and, and take a blessing, but he was called the friend of God. 
And, and then we fast forward to the renewing of the covenant with Moses. And what is it said in the scriptures about Moses and his relationship with God? In Exodus 33, 11, it says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Can, I think if, in, if any one of us, if we had the experience that God spoke to us face to face, that would be, that's it. We would just close our eyes and that would be the end. And Moses was speaking to him face to face as one speaks to a friend. To the point that when the incident of the golden calf, when the people made the, the golden calf to worship because they, they began to um, falter in their, in their trust and their faith, when Moses was up on the mountain, and it says that the anger of the Lord was roused against the people. He wanted to destroy them because of all of the things he had done to bring them out of Egypt, all of, all of the miracles that they had witnessed, all of the blessings they received. And now, so quickly, so thick, in such a fickle way, they returned to the worship of idols. And listen to what, what happens between Moses and God. It says, when, But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom you swore by yourself, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your descendants all of this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then what does it say? Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses, in a sense, went to God and said, Come on, Lord, you are compassionate, you are merciful, you promised, you are the friend of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you said that those people who came after them would be blessed and that you would give them the inheritance and all of these things of the covenant. And the thing that God wanted to do, he didn't do because of Moses. Because Moses was able to speak to him as a friend. He was able to twist the arm of his friend, if you will. Let us now fast forward to Elijah, the great prophet of the kingdoms. King Ahab, one of the, the, the wicked kings of Israel, who one after the other, they repeated the sin of falling into idol worship again, the same sin, worshiping the idols, the idol of, or the, the, the god Baal. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah says, as the Lord our God lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And God honored his words. And later, Elijah prayed for rain to return. It says, Elijah was a man, James, the book of James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. So Elijah, in his boldness, he says, at my word, I say, there will be no rain in the land. And I know that if I say it, my friend, the one who honors me because I honor him, will do it. And God honored him. God allowed a famine to take place in the whole land because Elijah said so. And when Elijah said, okay, enough, Lord, bring the rain back, the Lord said, as you honored me, I will honor you. 
It's really sort of unbelievable to think of how God honors us who honor him. And so, constantly throughout the scriptures, God identifies himself not as just, I am God, I am the Lord of the universe. But what does he say? He says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And we should say, we should add our name. Lord, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the poor Kirolos. You, you are the father, you are the God of, insert your own name in your children's name. He chooses to be known by his children. It's like once I'm married and I have kids, I, I'm no longer just Kirolos. I'm, I'm Kirolos who is the husband of Shireen. I'm Kirolos who is the father of Matthew and Carissa. I can't be separated from that identity anymore. It's who I am. And God has chosen to be identified by us. And even, of course, when in the New, in the New Testament, the, 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 the metaphors, the, the images of, for example, the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In other words, can, you, can there be a vine without branches or branches without a vine? He's saying we are inseparable. You, you are part of me and I am part of you. And St. Paul says, well, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Of his bones. Not just something ethereal or mystical. But we are part of his, his flesh and his bones. He chose to make us part of his flesh and his bones. And in the prayers of the church and the litany of the departed, which we pray every vespers, graciously, O Lord, repose their souls in the bosom of who? Of God? Of Jesus? No, we say, repose them in the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by extension, and St. Mary, and St. Anthony, and St. Mark, and each one of us that are, have gone to our rest, repose them with your children, in your, who are all part of that same bosom, because you... There is no bosom of God without the bosom of Abraham. Even the Lord himself, when he tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man, he says that when, the, when Lazarus died, where was he taken? He says, so that it was, the beggar died, Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. It would have been much clearer if he just said, to God's bosom. But he said, Abraham's bosom. So think of the beauty of this tapestry that God has weaved for us in, in history, in, in salvation history. And St. Paul then, I think, summarizes it so beautifully in his epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2. You can reflect on it more in chapter 2 of Ephesians verses 14 through 19. He says, for he himself, that is Christ, he himself is our peace who has made both one. What is both? Heaven and earth, God and man, angels and flesh, saints and sinners. He has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby putting to death the enmity, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Rather, you are fellow citizens of the saints, members of the household of God. You are part of the bosom of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are no longer on the outside. You are no longer something other than. You are no longer something separate from. But you are one and the same because of Christ, who has abolished any kind of separation or enmity. And so even in the book of Revelation, we see the martyrs crying out for, for, for their, their, their vengeance, to make right what was done wrong to them. In the sixth chapter, St. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God for the, and for the testimony which they held, that is, the, the witness that they bore in which they were killed. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, were completed. They had to wait for their brethren and their friends to join them. So there's this, there is this inseparable unity between heaven and earth. They, they can't live without us and we can't live without them. They can't just sort of go on with, their, with the joy of being in heaven. We think, well, what would the saints have to do with us? They're in the presence of God. Why, why would they come and be with us? Why would they attend the liturgy with us? They're inseparable from us. They, they, they cannot find the fulfillment of their joy without our participation with them. Even the Lord in the parable of the lost coin, you know, they're the, the parables of the, the prodigal son and the lost sheep and the, and the lost coin. The three parables are mentioned in Luke chapter 15. And what does the Lord says? He says, likewise I say to you, there is, regarding finding the lost coin, he says, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's strange. What do the angels have to do with my repentance or my lack of repentance? That's something between me and God. And the Lord says, no, the, the angels rejoice in your repentance and my repentance. So by extension, by consequence, would we say then that the angels are saddened by our rebellion, by our sin? Yes. Are they saddened by our lack of preparation for the Eucharist for attending to the mysteries of the church, confession, and are they saddened by our lack of zeal and fervor for our faith? Yes. They, they can't separate their joy from our participation with them. They want us to be enjoying the, the, the face of God as they do, saying holy, holy, holy throughout all of eternity. And that's why, again, in the, in the prayer of Matins, we say what the deacons should know this. Let us, what, praise with the angels saying glory to God in the highest. See, we can't even say glory to God in the highest alone. We have to do it with the angels. We, we praise with them. They praise with us and the saints. There's a, one of my favorite fractions that uh, is, is called the, one of the fractions that we pray at the end of the liturgy called Fraction to the Son, about the redemption that Christ, 
wrought for us on the cross, the priest says, what is it that you are carrying upon your shoulders? This is the cross of shame which you carried on my behalf. What is this, O Redeemer? What has caused you to consent to this? Shall the Great One be despised? Shall the Glorified One be afflicted? Shall the Exalted One be humbled? Oh, the greatness of your love. Yes, it is your great love that made you accept with endurance all these sufferings for my sake. And then this part he says, I give thanks to you, O God. I give thanks to you, O my God. And with your angels and all your creation, give thanks to you on my behalf for I am unable to present your praise as befits your love. Have we ever seen a greater love? In other words, the angels even complete, they even complete for me my inability to praise him properly. I can't give thanks enough for what he has done for me. And the angels in the creation, they do it on my behalf. They, they make up for us even what we lack in honoring God. And Jesus said something very beautiful. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. But what does he say after that? And greater works, greater works than these he will do. God honors you and I so much that he says, I want you to even do more than what I did. I want you to do even greater works than the works that you see done at my hands. So, our church is very rich. The prayers, the liturgy, the, the communion of the saints, something that, that we will never exhaust in this life. Believe me, there are so many stories, I will share just two stories to end, of how the saints and the angels interfere or, or, or enter into the, the daily activities of our world without us even asking them, without us even having a relationship with them. Uh, last week, on July 31st, was the Feast of St. Abunub. St. Abunub, I wish we had an icon of him, a 12-year-old martyr who suffered tremendously for, the, for his love for Christ, and a great miracle-working child saint that we have in our church. A lady who had this is a recent miracle, a lady who had stage four cancer in the brain. The doctors told her, there's really nothing we can do. You can try surgery. She probably won't survive surgery. Um, if we don't do surgery for sure, it's just a matter of time. So the family, they didn't know what to do. They said, well, the only possibility of hope is the surgery. So they said, either way, they're saying there's no, there's no chance for her to survive. We'll do what's on our part, and we'll leave the rest to God. So when the lady was in the, in the operating room on her hospital bed, she found um, a young boy wearing white like the doctors. And if you know the icons of St. Abinub, he always shown wearing like a white tunic with like a brown cross hanging, something like this. So she's, she sees this young child, he's just walking around the, her hospital bed. So she says to him, so which, which uh, doctor are you the child of? She thought, okay, maybe he's the son of one of the doctors, that's why he's wearing white like, one, like his dad. So he said, I'm not the child of any of the doctors. 
So she said, well, then who are you? He said, I'm Saint Abu Noob. She said, what are you? He said, I'm here to facilitate your surgery and to bring about your healing. Now listen to what she says to him. She says, but I didn't ask for you. She had prayed for many saints, but she never, she didn't, she didn't ever think to call upon Saint Abu Noob. She said, but I didn't ask for you. He said, but I came to help you and, and to facilitate your, your healing. And she was 100% healed. She was cured, 100%. She didn't ask for him. Another story early on in the days of uh, St. Mina's monastery, um, a bishop was visiting the monastery and uh, he heard uh, a lady, a non-Christian lady, this is also important, a non-Christian lady who was living not too far from where the monastery is, she came to the monastery and she entered in the room the bishop was visiting and he was visiting some of the monks there and he heard the following story from the lady herself. She said, I came to return the sum of, the sum of money that was given to me by one of you. So they said, we don't understand. So she said, and this is her, in her, her own words, she said, my family and I were passing through a difficult financial hardship. We tried by all means to find a way out, but failed. Creditors were about to take my home and my salary is very limited. Amidst all of this, and when all the doors were closed before me, my doorbell rang. I opened the door to find an elder man who looks like you guys, right? She's non-Christian, so he looks like you. He is wearing like you, he has the beard. But I, I don't recognize him among you. She said, without any introductions, without saying anything, he just told me, I know your circumstances, and he gave me an envelope. And in there was a sum of money, and he said, take this envelope and pay all of your debts. And when your circumstances are better, you can return it to the monastery of St. Mina in Meriut. Then he disappeared, and I didn't see him. And because I was badly in need, she said, I opened the envelope and paid all of my debts. And thanks be to God, all of my circumstances are now better, so I came to give back the money that I took to the man who helped me. So in those days, again, it was the early days of St. Minas, there weren't that many monks. So they said, okay, you said it's none of us. So they didn't know who she was talking about. So they said, okay, maybe it's Baba Kurula. So they took her to the, the Mazar, to where his body is, to the shrine. And if you visited St. Minas Monastery, you know in his shrine, they have all these pictures of Baba Kurulus around his, his coffin. So when they took her to the shrine, they said, do you recognize the man that came to you? She said, yes, that's him. All of these pictures are him. He's the one who visited me. He's the one who paid my debts. And they said to her, my lady, the one who visited you, his body is there in that coffin. Of course, she had no idea. She left the envelope and she left. Non-Christian woman visited by heaven. So how much more can we say with St. Paul, we'll end with this beautiful verse from St. Paul. And, and this verse, again, I encourage us all to meditate on. Hebrews 12, it's easy to remember. Hebrews 12, the first two verses. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May the cloud of witnesses that are today surrounding all of us encourage us to lay aside every weight and run with endurance to finish the race that God has set before us. And to him be all glory now and ever into the ages of all ages. Amen. In truth, uh, uh, say, of this day, each one according to his name, the beloved of Christ. Intercede on our behalf, O Lady of us all, the Theotokos, Mother of our Savior, that he may forgive us our sins. Pray to the Lord on our behalf, O blessed Saint, our teacher, Paul the Apostle, that he may forgive us our sins. Blessed be the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity. We worship Him and glorify Him. In the wisdom of God, let us attend. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Truly. Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one answer with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us.